0: Hi, this is Ian Thomas, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues.
1: Radio is a big part of your past, is it not? I was a producer
0: at CBC for two years. Did a nas- the, first na- the first national rock show
1: called National Rockworks Company. That, that also had comedy in it Is that
0: well there were comedy inserts on that uh, but we went around I went and recorded bands all across Canada and uh, uh, we did a lot of them some of them went to the transcription recording service right uh, some of them served as demos and people got record deals uh, out of uh, uh, the uh, the tracks that we cut and uh, it was a real audio education for me
1: that happened after your first album is that correct
0: no that happened before painted ladies oh okay uh my first band tranquility bass had a hit a canadian hit uh, called if you're looking and and then that band just started it was a cabaret band and it wasn't doing anything for me as a songwriter because it was all covers and so i quit Uh, my wife was pregnant and at nursing school and uh So I went looking for a job, and I landed a job as a producer at at CBC. They had uh, Tranquility Base had recorded with the Toronto um,
1: Symphony Symphony
0: and the Hamilton Philharmonic. Um, And so a producer who... Uh, Irving Glick uh, he recommended me and David Bird who had recorded Tranquility Bass for uh, uh, just a live sort of popular music entertainment uh, segment on, a, on another program so both those guys gave me wonderful recommendations and I landed the job
1: Wow, can I ask you what working in radio would have taught you as a musician?
0: Sure, for starters I've always been I've always been fascinated with recording. I'm a gear pig. It's part of my DNA. I love the art of recording as much as writing and performing. Uh, I hate the way it went for a long time where, uh, you know, even in the film scores I was doing, the recording was... We were delivering on DA88s, which were just the worst format. Uh, so shallow, no bottom end, no warmth, no depth of field. It was just hideous, and I started getting turned off at all. But back in 1971, when I started at CBC, the first job that was assigned to me, it was called Continental Holiday with Ivan Romanoff, his orchestra, and chorus. So 14-voice male chorus. 27 piece orchestra live off the floor at Studio G into a Ward Beck console and a bunch of little individual, you know, uh, Bogan and Schur mixers and all banged into the board, all down to a mono quarter inch mix live off the floor. Right. That was probably the best ear training I ever had in my life. Cause you listen to all your mistakes Uh, on the air on Sunday we recorded on Thursday I edited on uh, Friday it was on the air on Sunday Uh, so you learned because of the shortcomings of the consoles we were using you learned a lot about uh, angles of microphones you know you come away off that microphone you lose the bottom end you tilt it one side You, you know you might get a little nicer frequency response Uh, All sorts of things like that till you start learning your microphones as well as placement of microphones. Uh, And then you start getting into what compressors work. How do you stop a band from getting out of hand? Uh, And then you had this live, uh, you know, 14 voice male chorus off the floor. uh, And uh, you had to make that speak against a full orchestra. So that training... Was fabulous, and then they had a Neve console in Studio Four S on Young Street, and that's where I started producing a lot of rock and roll and transcription records. Wow! A uh, couple of engineers, uh, I picked their brains, and uh, I eventually had a Neve in my studio. I actually bought the Neve from McClear, which used to be RCA. <clears throat> so it was uh, two years there, and. Not only did I learn a lot about uh, production in that window, but because I was producing so many other artists, uh, I recognized a lot of flaws in my own writing. Oh. As I was trying to, as I saw why some of their songs weren't working, you know, a lot of flags started going up. And so it was a wonderful learning experience for me compositionally. And I stumbled across some wonderful writers. A guy named Bruce Miller we did a transcription recording with. He ended up writing a couple of number ones for Reba McIntyre. Uh-huh. And these days, I, and the days I did, I worked with him. Uh, he had never recorded before, and he only had a handful of songs, but they were brilliant. Just brilliant.
1: So I think of you as a songwriter. Um, can I ask you how you view yourself and how that and and if you consider yourself a songwriter first,
0: well, it was uh, songwriting for me was uh, I became aware of my subconscious that's always working, and um, when I wrote my first song, it wasn't a great song, uh, but the doing of it um, right off the bat, I was
1: hooked. How old were you at that point? Fifteen. Wow.
0: And um, it was a classic sort of traditional folk song. There was nothing avant-garde about it. There was a lot about that old school folk uh, tradition that I I liked. Uh, I liked the social conscience of it. So, you know, the songs were about something. You know, Dylan, when he first began, was putting himself in the Woody Guthrie role, you know, basically copying Woody's whole thing. Uh, And uh, obviously put a a different twist on it but things like Blowing in the Wind and you know those songs were you know very much uh, very socially very socially thoughtful I thought Uh, so that element of music always interested me Um,
1: can I ask you that socially thoughtful you just came back from doing a a benefit or fundraiser for the food bank Um, does that come from your parents this the Mm. socially conscious part
0: I think in part. My dad was uh, a wonderful philosopher. At the end of his life, he was a medical ethicist. He was a pioneer in medical ethics, wow. uh, which is really the cutting edge of social responsibility. Uh, you know, when is an operation necessary? Who's the operation for? The, the patient, the doctor, the family? Who's it for? Uh, <clears throat> the family that can't part with the loved one who wants to leave? Uh, the doctor who has an experimental surgery, I mean you know the the infinite uh, machinations of that. So I learned an interesting uh, sense of values uh, from my father. And I think generally speaking, uh, my songs have helped me flesh out some of my own values. Uh, so I think, yeah, I would say I learned a lot from uh, uh, from my father. Uh, and my mom in her way as well. She was a doer, so, you know, she would physically do something for somebody as her way of... Uh, uh, my dad would be more involved with, you know, helping someone uh, save their job or in field of medical ethics. My gosh, um, he was... His medical ethics books became textbooks, you know, around the world.
1: Wow. Uh-huh. I'm curious, both you and your brother became successful in the arts, in, in music and in comedy and film, which is not an easy field to get into. How supportive were your parents in that endeavor?
0: Um,
1: how did they contribute to that? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, initially my dad was a Baptist minister, so maybe that's where the entertainer thing. I have yet to meet a minister that I don't think is a frustrated entertainer. Mm. Um, so these guys are all showbiz guys that never happened, so uh so the pulpit gives them an audience it's a captive audience um so that might sound a little nasty but it's really quite true and i don't say that in a in necessarily a a degrading thing because the performance arts are needy Mm -hmm. you know we uh, there ain't no show without an audience so we're all needy of audience uh to perform but the the show business thing There was always music going in the home. I mean, my first stringed instrument was a ukulele playing George Formby songs to make my dad laugh because he loved all those old George Formby songs. My mother sent us off to piano lessons as kids. Uh there was a lot of humor in the house. Dave and I were doing after my father loved all the British humor, so we had Goons albums at home and Mate. Peter Sellers recordings. I think actually George Martin produced some of those. So we were into all the voices, you know, we were into all of uh Sellers, you know I declare <laughs> a lot of the English things. I remember when war was declared, I tried to call her Hitler. Who was so kind to us on our summer vacation just months before. So we were doing all these stupid voices. And sometimes Dave would just leave the table and we'd have guests and he'd come back. And he'd do like 10 minutes as a Pakistani vacuum cleaner salesman. (laughs) You know, because we learned that Pakistani dialect from Peter Peter Sellers. You know, I mean, he, good God, he had the whole thing uh, down so beautifully. I love dialects. Mm -hmm. So we became dialect junkies. And now I suppose a lot of it is deemed politically incorrect. Well, I don't buy that at all. I think to celebrate, you know, my mother's Scottish. So that was the very first one we learned, you know. And uh, and Dave and I, Dave had a funny line the other day. It was about Sean Connery. Supposedly one of the greatest actors of our time. And there he is playing a Russian submarine uh, commander. Dosh you cheeky wee monkey. You know, and there he is playing a Spanish swordsman in the Highlander. Buenish Deus, you cheeky wee monkey. So, you know, we were always doing that stuff. And I gave Dave his first job writing comedy for the national rockworks company right. dave and gene levy uh wrote and uh performed little comedy inserts so music music comedy insert music music comedy insert and um and then dave gave me my first film score so it it's uh it's been funny you know whenever we had opportunities uh for one another Uh, No, humor
1: is a huge part of, well, not a huge part of your act, but you use a lot of humor in in your songs. Not songs, but in introducing your songs.
0: Sure. Um,
1: Did you ever consider going into comedy?
0: um, It's not my passion. I love laughing. And actually, I was on that club circuit for so long, some days I couldn't face the songs, so I moved into doing shtick and... uh, to pl- just to keep myself amused. Right. Um, that can, you know, playing your, your songs night after night, and I mean, clubs have always been meat marks and boo- meat markets and booze cans. Right. And, you know, very rarely are, are people really all that enthralled with whatever band is on the stage. And <clears throat> so that became a great frustration to me. You know, we'd go on a tour down in the States. We did the year of the cat tour with Al Stewart, and and we were getting... You know, a couple of standing ovations every night. We did the last show in Austin, Texas. It's just, they were like standing almost every every song. It was ridiculous. And then the, I get home the next day and we're at the Knob Hill Hotel. Right. And so it was going from those highs to, you know, we had played so many clubs. We were yesterday's news in Ontario, of course. And, uh, you know, I was trying to keep the same band together, selling records, making okay money with airplay and that co- sort of thing, but the band was always a, a losing proposition. But you know, three roadies, four uh, other musicians, two trucks on the road—it it just uh,
1: wow. So when you when you decide that you want to become a musician, and you write songs, and then. You had success with your albums. and went, I guess the first few went gold, and you had hit singles like Painted Ladies. Yeah. But then you run into the realities of the road and the cost. and how, What does that do to a musician?
0: Well, in some respects, it, it can be a little soul-destroying. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately for me, writing was always a haven. It was always a place to go and hide. It was uh, a shelter from the storm. I could just hole up and right. please myself musically.
1: How does that happen in terms of, when you said you wrote that first song and you love the process, then how do you continue? Like, is it is it a, a daily regiment? Is it?
0: You need the discipline. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's... Uh, the discipline is you have to show up with pen and paper in hand or an instrument in hand. You have to do that with some regularity. You don't wait for the inspiration. Uh, cause you can wait a long time. And even when you're, you're, you're disciplining yourself to be in position, uh, it takes, you know, you can work and work and work. And if you're lucky, the muse might show up and then all of a sudden away you go. Uh, and it seems it usually takes me about three weeks to get the pump primed and i feel a lot of what i'm writing is crap that's crap That's but it's funny all of a sudden bits and pieces start uh, congealing and then all then you you break through and you get the first song and usually once i go to all the bother of breaking the dam i just keep going and when you just keep the hammer down and then they just they keep flowing and uh and if you're lucky, the muse shows up, and you know songs will vary between songs of inspiration and songs of technique and work. Um, you know, uh, a lot of what's in the marketplace, of course, is derivative and uh, of marketplace and pleasing the record company marketeers and uh, and what's popular on radio at the moment, um, and that's always been the case. I think one of my problems as a songwriter is, for the most part, I never really kowtowed. I mean, you listen to my albums, they're all over the map. I didn't find a thing and milk it because I knew it was going to go right through. I I could not issue those sort of mainstay Brian Adams songs um, because they didn't interest me that much. Uh, I was interested in sometimes things that were too quirky for the air, and, uh, and sometimes too schmaltzy for the air. Cause I, uh, I love some, some schmaltz from time to time. So my writing was all over the map, uh, which was great for me as a writer. Uh,
1: Would you stay away from a song that sounded like something else?
0: Um, a, and a couple occasions I didn't. And, uh, there was a song called Sally that, uh, sound, the chorus sounded very, uh, very steely Dan. And, uh, That bothered me, Um, Hmm. but the label liked it so much, and I I let them put it out, and I shouldn't have put it on the record. Um, But those are... um, It's interesting. A lot of artists I know have been trying to copy other artists and come up with something totally unique. Right. And uh, I guess my problem is uh, my ear is too good, and if I I like something and want to copy it, it'll sound too much like what I'm copying, so... Uh, You know, you you look at that whole British invasion. I mean, they were reinventing uh, old American Mm -hmm. R&B right down to, you know, I mean, Mick sang like a Southern. He was trying to sing like a Southern black guy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even Annie Lennox, a Scot. You know, if she had sung, sweet dreams are made of these, you might disagree have troubled the world in the seven... You know, the whole world would have gone, what? You know, so we are sort of expecting people, if you were into the popular music thing, you had to go into the Americana version of it all. Um, so I think on the best day, every writer is derivative. You're always building on right. stuff that you hear, you know? And, you know, those blues artists who basically uh, had to go to Europe to make a living uh, after the Beatles invasion, Mm -hmm. you know, guys like Keith Richards, etc., he supported them so heavily and and verbally in what he did and acknowledged their presence in everything he writes. Um, uh, I think he really helped a lot of those guys. Oh, for Sure. And, uh, so, you know, very few people will own up to their, (laughs) their, the origins of their music, like, like Keith did. Uh, and yeah, you listen to, I think the Beatles take on a lot of it all, apart from the obvious Chuck Berry things. And, you know, uh, uh, she was just 17, saw her standing there. That was the name of the song. Uh, you know, a lot of, there's some Chuck Berry stuff going on there, you know, of course, brian wilson totally ripped off chuck berry with that whole surfing sound that was you know ding, 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 ding. that was all chuck berry for god's sakes right Um, uh, with different words you know um so yeah the derivations are always there somebody said uh anybody can steal it takes somebody really no anybody can borrow it takes a really smart person to steal and make it sound like themselves <laughs>
1: So, <laughs> The fact that on your first album you had a big hit, what did that do to you? Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, Twofold. Uh, good things call, as a calling card. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, bad thing because by the time it was cycled through and was so ubiquitous on the air, uh, I was off in another direction writing. And I could have got a lot more songs out of that... That was a nice little sort of folksy territory for me, with you know some nice pop elements with that clavinet, and and the lyric was pretty much autobiographical. You know, son of a Baptist minister turned philosophy presser professor, and here I am playing the sleaziest hellhole bars in right. Ontario, sharing dressing rooms with strippers, and uh, and yeah, longing for longing for home. Uh, so it. Um, so the song meant something to me, as, you know, as poppy as it is. But by the, by the time I got into the writing for the Long, Long Way record, I mean, Long, Long Way was a total right turn from, mm-hmm. from Painted Ladies, and I think I ostracized a lot of my fans from the first album.
1: What's your relationship with a song like Painted Ladies? I mean, obviously, let's go back to the first time you heard it on the radio, because that must have been something else. Yeah. Tell me about what that was like.
0: Well, it wasn't the first time I'd heard a song of mine on the radio. The first one was, if you're looking, that Tranquility Bass song I right. mentioned. Um, it's a high.
1: Do you remember the exact moment that it happened?
0: Yeah, I was driving I was driving home from Toronto. And it came on Chum. And, uh, I mean, Chum was a big deal, Chum yeah. FM. And, uh, you know, and it was just from the get-go it just started soaring up the charts and uh you know when you're a writer uh and and a recording artist hearing your song in amongst in amongst other songs that you might like and some of the artists you might like uh it's a serious buzz i mean it's it's just it's a high there's no doubt about it it's a high there's a vanity element to it um you know you also hear all the things that bug you about yourself right uh and for me as a gear pig, i hear some of the mixed things that bother me um so i'm never happy with a mix you know i think it was Pl- i think it was plato who said there can be no absolutes on this crude sphere of existence with such imperfect beings as ourselves and boy is that ever true about recording although digital recording has certainly given us control over fixing pretty much everything but are you ever happy with the way things sound
1: like when you go into the studio is it easy to say yeah it's done I'm happy
0: um no I usually say it's done because I can't stand doing it anymore right uh you know when I was in Prague working on the orchestral album and writing all these orchestral versions and s- just singing with orchestra was great fun but I ran out onto the floor uh, during the run through of a ballad called To Comfort You that I did on the second Boomer's album and actually Bette Midler ended up doing a version of that as well um, and I'm just listening to, listening to 50 strings on the floor and uh, big big string section and it was gorgeous. And then I went inside and uh, into the control room. And by the time it comes down, the wiring and the microphones and the shortcomings of a lot of microphones and up through a console and into some speakers that maybe aren't the best speakers in the world. Uh, I was just so downhearted. It was just we still can't make it sound like our ears here.
1: Right.
0: It's a facsimile. But when you're sitting in the middle of a string section, oh my God, that's fantastic. I'd like to maybe put one of those Kunskopf's, you know, the head, the the rubber head with the the two condensers in the ears. Just put that in the middle of a string section and hear if that would have brought anything to the party. But um, the big problem for me is most of the big microphones, the Neumann 47s, 49s, uh, 87, 67s, they're all voice radio mics. So they have a spike at 1,200 cycles. There's an M50 that was made in 1950. The Decca at Air Lyndhurst, where they record a lot of big soundtracks. First of all, that room is fantastic to cord, record an orchestra in, and there's so much air around it. And you can get that Decca Uh, Back in just a beautiful position. A -a Decatree is uh, a left, a right, and a center mic in an array. Uh, So those three positions, and you usually take that back off the soundstage a little bit. So you're getting the whole orchestra in the air. And the Decatree has M50s, one of the best microphones uh, for a string section, Uh, and for horns as well, because it doesn't have the 1200 cycle bump. And uh, strings sound like silk on M50s. Well, they didn't have any M50s in Prague. And I probably I probably should have tried to go to Air Lyndhurst, but I couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't afford the musician's fees in London. It was going to be 96000 to record at home. Wow. Uh, this is uh, just ha- for the orchestra.
1: Hamilton or
0: yeah. Toronto. Or Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, AFM. That's just the AFM. Uh, the musicians union fees and uh, $96,000 that's not recording that's not studio that's not mixing that's not overdubbing any you know contemporary instruments or whatever and in Prague it was $20,000 so all of a sudden it became reachable there unfortunately the fees structure was set up in a time where records were selling they don't sell anymore classical records don't sell jazz records don't sell And orchestras themselves are getting fed up. The Seattle Orchestra left the AFM so it could start doing sound scores again. The first American sound score I'd heard in a long time recorded on American Soundstage was the Seattle Orchestra on the film Revenant with uh, um, Leo DiCaprio. So, uh, yeah, listening to the something with my ears and going in and hearing what's coming out of the end of the console and into the speakers... It's like, all right, we're making another facsimile. And so I've never been completely happy with... That's why I started engineering myself. Engineers were saying, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. And then when I did, you know, got to work on the Glider album, I just said, hell, with it. I'm going for it. I'm going to engineer this myself. And I got a guy to assist. I said, look, just cover me. Tell me when I'm not hitting the tape too, or hard enough. Let's... We had tape in those days, right? And uh, but I'm just I'm just working with my ears here. It took me a day and a half to get the drums the way I wanted, maybe two days.
1: So, so not only are we dealing with being a musician that can play, but now it's writing a song, and then beyond that, more importantly, it seems is how things sound.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's how how I hear it in my head and I want to hear it. You know, there were a couple of songs I've written over the years where I heard all the harmonies of the song in my head and the song may not have been great, but I loved the harmonic mix of it all. There was a a really insipid ballad called Julie, but all the harmonies in it, uh, I heard them all in my head. That's the reason I did it and I sang all the parts in and, uh, you know, I I sort of always sung my harmonies because... I heard them in my head and uh, you know as soon as I got a lead down okay okay just keep the tape rolling and and I just start stacking the harmonies and you know they were usually done in half an hour and wow uh, so that that was a that satisfied me so I, I could hear the background vocals I could hear the lead vocal working against the chord structure and that was satisfying
1: so you've had a number of hits and I'm always curious about the concept of hits because it doesn't mean it's the best song it doesn't mean that... I mean, you would expect it to be the best song, but it's not. How do you view a hit?
0: Well, you just basically view it by the size of the checks that come in, really. <laughs> uh, because even the chart doesn't mean much. You know, uh, I, uh, I read a, the book Hitman by Frederick Denon. Um, it takes about 250000 bucks to break the top 20 on Billboard. Uh, if, you did, if your record company didn't spend that money to buy the Indies... Uh, I mean Payola was real and uh, I couldn't understand why Painted Ladies was top 10 in so many cities and it couldn't get farther than 27 in Cashbox or Billboard or whatever and uh, yeah, Piano Man, Billy Joel I was talking to him about that we were playing Massey Hall together around 1974, 75 and Piano Man stopped around 27 same problem so it was interesting. That song, "Piano Man," and "Painted Ladies" were huge hits for both of us, mm-hmm. uh, and you know the performance residuals tell that. So you'd get a you get heavy rotation on all the radio stations, um, but you wouldn't break the top twenty on Billboard, and that would mean they wouldn't stock. Or, or rack your albums. And and so you wouldn't be selling as many albums. You would be into the territory called a turntable hit. It wasn't selling through. Right. Now with Billy Joel, he had an amazing agent behind him who got him all of the right uh, gigs and venues. So he built his following by being a road dog. Right. And they were concert halls. Uh, they weren't bars. I... I got stuck in the Ontario Barn Circuit and a Bar Circuit and nearly killed me
1: so but in your mind is Painted Ladies a very special song other than the fact that it was one of your biggest hits but did you think it was a song better than other things that you've written
0: no but then some of the things that have meant the most to me have stiffed
1: and you does know? that surprise you or you just automatically think well because the record company didn't go, get behind it and because this machine has to create the hit.
0: Well, because, because, because. You, you start to realize that, all right, you know, everything isn't going to resonate with everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Back to Square One was a song I did on my Levity album in 1987. I thought it was the best ballad I'd ever written. And I worked with um, Chris... Uh, God, I can't remember his last name right now. Wonderful producer, worked with Mike the Mechanics, produced Mike the Mechanics and some Paul Carrick stuff. And Great Brit. Did a wonderful job. Mm. Uh, used him on three songs. And, uh, and Back to Square One was one of them. And it was beautifully recorded. Uh, one of my best vocals. I thought one of my best songs. Uh, sort of got a collective yawn out there. Did okay in Sweden and a few pockets, but didn't take off in North America. And it was a big letdown to me. Um, but over the years, you, you know, if you let that stuff, if you buy into it all, your writing's going to dry up. Right. So you just come to the realization: anybody who writes a song, uh, some people are going to love it, some people are going to hate it, and a lot of people could care one one way or the other. Yeah, that's okay, and that's just the nature of it. That's the nature of art And that's the nature of being an artist It's going to resonate with some people It's not going to resonate with others Some of the sweetest Moments to me As a songwriter Haven't been Big hit radio successes There was a song I did on the second Boomers album Called Good Again I brought an engineer Over to help me mix it Because I was burned out on that album after recording it and actually writing it, demoing it, then re-recording it all uh, with the Boomers. And uh, I'd done a couple of mixes and I brought Simon over to mix and uh, so he worked on, helped me finish the album. I got uh, a letter from him about two months later saying uh, "I, I listened to that song over and over as my dad was dying of cancer and the song, it was called Good Again, it was all about... Learning to feel good again and making the memory of somebody who's gone a positive thing because right. nine times out of ten you bet that person wouldn't want you to be a, a you know a well of pain every time you thought about them, and then he cut and then he cut out. There was a line in the song, "Time changed the face, but it didn't touch the smile," and his dad was emaciated with cancer. He cut that line up, blew it up, and put it on his dad's coffin. So. I'm crying le- reading this letter from uh, from the engineer, lovely guy, Simon Hurl, brilliant engineer. and uh, And I thought, man, oh, man, it doesn't get any better than that. That something you've written had some resonance to somebody. Well, then that same song, which... You know, it was tucked in in the album. It wasn't a big single. I think the big single out of that was called You Gotta Know that did well in a few pockets in the U.S. and in Canada and all over uh, Germany and pockets in Europe. Uh, it was just tucked in there. Uh, Canadian radio started playing it for some reason. It wasn't a single. It was like, what the hell? What's going on here? And then, uh, oh, a good year after you know, I was already working on the next Boomers album. Get a phone call from Ann Murray and Lynn Rambo, her manager of many, many years, died. And she said I've been playing this damn Boomers song over and over. Do you mind if I put on my next album? Do you mind if I record it? And uh I just have at it, Ann. that's beautiful. That's lovely.
1: Do you so many questions come to mind with what we just said, but First of all, do you have to give permission for somebody to record your song? Does that always come through? Theoretically,
0: you? Um, generally, if it's a major artist, they know all the business connotations. So yeah, you got to get you got to get the publishing information, copyright usage in place because that gets printed on their own records, right? Right. So yeah, you have to be. Uh, usually, that can come from you know your publisher. In this case, it came down the pike uh, to me directly and. Uh, I loved that. In the case of, you know, when Santana did uh, Hold On, um, a friend of mine actually um, managed to get that cover. Uh, I had had an okay hit with it in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on the Runner album, I guess. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, virtually every
1: song on that album came out by other artists. Well, that's what I find that really strange because the ch- chains, I think, from... That Chicago album. did that. Chicago yeah. did that, The Runner, and also... Manfred Mann did
0: The Runner. Um, actually, a couple of other artists did The Runner as well. And uh, do you
1: ever say no? Pardon Is there a reason why somebody would say, hey, Ian, I want to do the song, and you would say, no, I don't think so?
0: Well, not really. And, and I say not really for very obvious reason. First of all, that somebody wants to place their career in your hands with your song. You know, they're, so they're they're taking a gamble on your song. Um, so right off the bat, that's a, that's a serious piece of validation as mm-hmm. as a writer. Um, so to say no, piss off. You know, I mean, what does that accomplish? Uh, I was always delighted when other people uh, wanted to do my song. Some of the versions. Are better than others. Some of them I didn't like at all, and I thought, oh, you totally missed the ball on that. Um, and others were great. Uh, some copied my stuff completely. Uh, you know, Hold On is basically my band track with Carlos. You know, Wedding Way, yeah. You know. Blowing in between every, every time the, you know, the singer took a breath, he threw another little lick in there. And it's like, oh, God, give me a rest, will you? <laughs> so that sort of, I mean, but generally I thought the band was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a great Canadian drummer on that, just trying to remember his name right now. Uh, Graham Lear, a yeah, yeah. Uh, wonderful drummer. Uh, so the song had a great pocket really good pocket so i enjoyed that i thought the band track was great i thought the singer was a good singer too um so yeah that's an interesting territory um i've never minded when clive davis called me about the runner because we were my the runner was down there to be released on a wrist and he passed on the album but we get this phone call you know good news bad news uh-huh. The Runner is perhaps the most important song of the decade. And I thought, okay, he's greasing me up. <laughs> Here it comes. I would really like it from Manfred Mann, uh, but I'm going to have to pass on your album. I've got too many artists right now. So, you know, I missed out on my U.S. release there, and, you know, so sort of the uh, booby prize was, but, you know, Manfred Mann's going do to the,
1: do the Runner. I love that version, but I don't know how you feel about it.
0: That version? Yeah. I thought it was great. What I thought was great about it, it wasn't a gulp and regurgitation. I, I did a more folky version of the runner. Uh, I thought uh, their version was really creative, and I thought it was uh, a nicely put-together record. They took a pass on the bridge. Uh, I didn't quite understand that because it tied the whole thing philosophically together. You're in a runner in a race uh taking someone's place who's run you're a runner in the race and the only way it's won is to pass on the flame that to me is the heart and soul of the (laughs) whole message of the lyric
1: and it's also a song about dedicated to terry fox yeah right so
0: well he's he certainly was behind the whole you know i i always thought i could never figure out what canada was what canadians were they our identities were easier to measure negative terms. You know, we were like Americans, but without the ammo. We're, we're like uh, the Swiss, but without number bank accounts. You know, we're right. like something, but without something, you know. Uh, and then when Terry Fox died, and I really felt, holy cow, it was tangible. The whole nation wept mm-hmm. for that boy. And it was such a strong sense of Canadian family in the loss of, uh, of Terry Fox. Uh, so that's that um, and then when the Terry Fox they were shooting a film of it and they called and asked if they could use the runner on that film I was like are you kidding me you know that was just that was the once again yeah I loved the residuals from Manfred Mann and they they did a great made a great record Mm -hmm. but I loved the idea that that song was in the Terry Fox story where it all began
1: yeah it, it's amazing to me, the power of song, and, and I just, I think what you do and creating these songs, it's, it's an amazing thing. Do, do you look at it that way? How do you look at creating music?
0: Well, I think uh, I'm still in awe of it, in that uh, sometimes you write stuff and you go, whoa, where'd that come from?
1: I mean, I've heard that term where you just feel like you're like a vessel, and things go through you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you feel more conduit than than composer. And got a handful of songs that wrote themselves. It just uh, it's it's a powerful sensation. It's a spiritual kind of vibe. I know that might sound heavy, but you're plugging into something. You know, yeah, yeah. infinite infinity maybe. I don't know. You're plugging into something.
1: And when when this happens, do you know it's do you know immediately it 's special,
0: yeah, sometimes you'll get shivers you get your hair will go up in the back of your neck i mean it's a it's it's a really it can be a really interesting experience. not every song is like that, but you know there are enough there that that 's the drug I mean there is such a serious sense of pulling stuff from somewhere uh, as Stephen Hawking might have called it in that diagram of his from elsewhere right. Uh, You know, he had a diagram. There was a V pointing up called the, you know, finite future. There was a V pointing down called the the finite past. And the tips of those two Vs touched at a point he called uh, the present. And it's kind of a, you know, when you think of it, here we are in this thing called the present. And actually it wasn't, he called it the finite future, but it wasn't because that V was wide open. Uh, I think we have an uh, intersection. If you blow the intersection up of those two Vs, blow it up, you've got a crossroads. Right. So you've got the finite future ahead of you. You're going to make an appointment for next Tuesday. You've got the infinite future uh, ahead of you. You can think of all the things you want to do or you're going to strive to do. You've got the finite past, what you've done, and you've got the infinite past, which is all the things you could have done. And those are the four points. And we stand at that intersection every day. And all the inches of movement we make forward as we try to uh, better our art, as we try to be better human beings, as we try to respond to life because we can't control it uh, we can't control life all we can do is respond to it and our response is the import of the finite infinite future the finite and the infinite past and all those things land on you in that moment we call uh the present and the path that we take it's like a uh, the trail of a slug it's it's You know, it's driven by the interactions of those four points on the compass. Things can pull you one way or another. Oh, I don't want to make that mistake again, so I'm going to try and do it maybe this way. So now you're not only learning from your finite past, but you're also looking at the infinite past of what you maybe should have done. At the same time, you're connecting with the infinite future of what you would love to do. You know, and and the finite future would be that I hope I can finish this song.
1: Right. Uh,
0: you know, the song, it wraps it all up into a finite thing because now it has borders. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's a spiritual process. And I think sentience is a spiritual process. You can't sit on the dock on a summer's night and look up there. And not be humbled by it all, at the same time as feeling not only a sense of belonging, but Shakespeare's sweet sadness all in one ball. And that's kind of what you feel when you're in the zone, when you're you're writing a a piece of music that uh, is just vibrating with you uh, on every level.
1: Are you still writing on a regular basis?
0: Yeah, but a lot. I've got two novels I'm juggling with a bio and uh, a handful of songs.
1: Okay, the other thing you did was do a lot of film scores. Yep. So as an artist, how different is the approach between you writing a song for your band or other people versus you writing uh, music for a soundtrack versus you writing a novel? Well, writing a film score is great
0: because you're following the film. Everything you write comes from there. So uh, that's one of the joys of it. Some of it is mindless mm-hmm. in that you're not struggling to uh, to find what to write. The pictures are dictating what you write. So you may... Uh, at least I've found whenever I was struggling with a cue for a film I just make sure the computer's on I'm at a keyboard pick a couple of instruments and just play with the picture and then you you play back what you just did and you go whoa that's working or that isn't and you know and and then sometimes you're a tailor if you know you're in disagreement with the director and uh you realize, okay, uh, this is a this is a service job. You know, I'm I'm facilitating uh, someone else, and that is your job because it's the dire- the whole thing is the director's right. uh, focus. Um, so that's different from book writing and songwriting because book writing is and songwriting are the same regimen of sitting there and just the discipline of sitting there day after day and then either waiting for the voice in a book. Um, you know, my second book, The, the Lost Chord, uh, a whack of that wrote itself. I mean, it just, it ended up being two para, two parallel stories, one in 1847 and one in 1983 or 84. And the old story, 1847, uh, was just going to be there because this is where the chord uh, that allowed it was a chord that was discovered by this Franciscan monk on this big organ in, in Hamburg, a c- big cathedral organ. Given the decay time of the cathedral and these four massive chords that were played in succession as they overlapped in the decay time of the uh, of this uh, cathedral. It it was such a bizarre combination of harmonics and partials and everything that occurred that the consciousness was allowed to leave the body. The problem was getting back. So it was just to be initially just the historical preface to set up the modern day tale. Well, that 1847 story just started writing itself. So then I had to go from 1847. Okay, the manuscript arrives in 19. Eighty-four. It's in some. Uh, it's uh It's in this man's grandfather's uh, belongings when he's buried, and they find it with digital technology. He he has a stumbles across a verb setting that's similar to the old Hamburg Cathedral that cathedral that no longer exists, and the havoc starts all over Uh, his keyboard player is found with headphones on in a catatonic state and however the body will die without the soul so you know you've got x number of days to to get the soul uh, the soul back so that was the fun of the lost chord but the absolute joy of it was the 1847 story wrote itself self I had more or less fleshed out the modern day story Um, so that happens in songs too where you may be heading down one road and then all of a sudden, boom, off you go and you end up with a totally different song than you thought you were going to get and you were starting with.
1: How do you plan things when you're so creative and when you have so many commitments? You know, like, I mean, how do you, you're working on a book, you're working on writing songs, you've got tours. I was a lot that... easier when I was younger. <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't say that to be silly because it's passion. And when you're passionate about the work, You're not aware of the discipline. The older you get, the more discipline you have to apply before you get lost in the passion. So there's some role reversal. Mm -hmm. And the older you get, it's like, oh God, I I can face that today, you know. Whereas you know, when you're you're in your twenties or your teens and you're writing music, I mean, it's your whole raison d'être. But hell, I've got grandchildren. I got kids. I got a wife who loves me. Who'd like to see me once in a while out of the studio, and and I'd like to see her. And you know, we we like going on these jaunts. Uh, you know, we rented a apartment in Barcelona for the month of February a couple of years back. We're renting one in Sardinia this year, and, nice. and we like to experience other cultures and do those sorts of things. So it's getting harder. Uh, with all the other things that are going on. So I'm juggling these three books, two novels and this autobio, and the songs. I don't know what's... As soon as something takes off on me, I'm going to run with it. But right now, it's fits and starts. And uh, I have to be able to get myself... I've been doing too much touring. I have to get myself in position long enough and say, okay... Leave me alone. I need at least a month to break through the ice. And uh, I haven't had a month for probably two years.
1: Well, I asked you before about your relationship with your songs and and how that might change. I find it interesting that how you, when you create a song, you have a certain relationship to that tune, whatever inspired you. I, as a listener, have a totally different relationship that you would never know about. Mm -hmm. Um, But tell me about how your song that relationship changes over the years.
0: Hmm. I don't know that it does. With the exception that you may be a little older and a little wiser. Right. And you know when you've finished a song, it may have pleased you, but you know, uh, this one's probably just for me. Uh, am I sorry I wasted the time writing it because it's just for me and maybe other people won't like it? No. Because you never know. Every song's a crapshoot. I think probably right now, the, the biggest thing that uh, is a little uh, annoying and uh, um, disheartening, you know, Gordon Lightfoot was asked about well, before his big health issues, so probably it would have been 20 years ago or more. You can do a new album? And he said, Well, nobody will play it. Why, why am I going to bother? And that's what was amazing about the 70s and and the early 80s. You know, you record an album, and when you're finished it, the next day the single was on the air. And uh, it was magical. And there were so many. The radio was so, the variety was so amazing. You know, growing up in the 60s, you'd hear Dave Brubeck playing, you know, Take Five, followed by the Stones, followed by Sinatra and the Beatles and, you know... Everybody to you know the nineteen ten fruit bubblegum company or whatever they call themselves, right. all those Andy Kim songs and uh, so the variety was insane and now you know uh radio's become so conglomerate and corporate, and so have record companies they've all record companies have always been uh rip off artists uh but I was so saddened when the c r t c allowed radio conglomerates to buy up to 50 percent uh of of the stations in a large market so that means you can have you have in many markets two companies that own all media Mm -hmm. and so consequently everything's being programmed by the mothership you're not going to break a record and uh, yeah, this record started breaking in Saskatoon and then other people started, or this started breaking in Dallas and then you, know, you don't get that anymore because nobody's got a mind of their own. Everybody's being dictated to and it's, you know, it's, it's food for the masses. Um, really sad. And I'm far too old uh, to be on radio now. Uh, all advert. if you're over 40, you're too old. All oh, the advertising is sold from 18 to 35. And if you're over 35, forget about it. And I understand that. That's fine. I had my time in the sun. But I'm sure glad that thinking wasn't around when Louis Armstrong was singing What a Wonderful World. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't around when Sinatra was still cranking out New York, New York. You know, I'm glad that that thinking wasn't around where there were so many wonderful artists still playing.
1: Do you think you're a better songwriter now than you were when you were in your 20s, 30s?
0: Um, in some ways, yeah. And in other ways, when you're that young, sometimes there's such an accessible passion that that reads through from writing onto the, right onto the, the final product. Uh... You know, maybe the older you get, you get a little more craftsperson in there. You may not want as many bells and whistles right. that a lot of the public might want. Uh, you might want the song stripped down a little more. Uh, so it's um, it's always a moving target. And at this age, people who are recording, are my age, it's largely vanity recording. Yeah, you might sell a few off the stage if you're doing that. Uh, but nobody's going to play it on radio. And uh, the, no record companies interested in you to speak of. Certainly, they're only interested in you if you're going to sell off the stage and buy from them. Right. Um, so it's a little disheartening to, I think, a broad spectrum of singer songwriters uh, who I think a lot of them have still got some goods. Uh, certainly, uh, Mark Jordan, I think, put out the best album of his career
1: this year. That was the coverage, though, was it?
0: Was yeah. It fun? Yeah, it's called Both Sides. Right. And uh, Lou Pamani, who did the runner tour with me on keyboards back in 81, did a wonderful job uh, producing and arranging a lot of that stuff. Fantastic job. Uh, so listening to that album of Mark's, uh, I mean, he's a painter, and he paints his songs, too. His songs are they're oral paintings.
1: Well, it kind of surprised me because he is known for his songwriting, but when, when Lou said he was doing all covers, that kind of took me back
0: he's a serious recording artist I think Uh, lovely voice just such a nice voice so yeah I listen to that and I think well God bless you for recording that and God damn the business for where it is Mm -hmm. that's the best album of your life and it's not gonna see the light of day so but that's just that's the market he knows it we've had this chat We'll both go on making records because we love making recordings. We love recording. We love the process. We love the sonic canvas. That's a drug to both of us. We love getting in the headphones and disappearing for days on end. And uh, so that's the drug. That's why
1: we still do it. Um, Did you ever lose that passion at any point in your <clears> career? Because <throat> you seen good and bad of the business and, you know, your record company went bankrupt and whatever. I mean, was there a point where the business of music got in the way of the passion that you have for music?
0: Sure, sure. You cannot... It's a roller coaster. Like I said, standing ovations in the States, Knob Hill in Toronto the next day. Um, putting out what you think your best work is, you get a collective yawn. Putting out a record you thought was okay, it takes off you know and you just thought it was kind of okay so yeah it's an emotional it is an emotional roller coaster but this is what separates i think real writers from people who are really kind of more after the stardom thing uh who want to make a lot of money and be a big star and stuff and and not to denigrate that i mean you know Madonna's really smart. She's an amazing marketing person. Is she the best recording artist in the world, the best songwriter in the world? No, but she's really shrewd, and she hires fantastic programmers, and she makes records that sound contemporary, and she takes a Ripley show, a Barnum & Bailey show around the world that is a wonderful thing to behold from what I understand. Mm -hmm. Um, I get all of that. And I'm probably none of that. So I understand. I understand that. Uh, you know, I watched you know Brian Adams looking at the Bruce Springsteen thing and going for it and packaging it. and he's a very crafty writer. Mm-hmm. He is a seriously crafty writer, a well uh, a well accepted writer too. I mean, I, one of his biggest hits though was, the thing from Robin Hood, you know, everything I do, which was one of the most insipid uh, songs he ever run to you was a great song. Mm -hmm. Um, So there, there you go. There's the thing where, you know, everything I do is this massive thing and, you know, it's attachment to the Robin Hood movie and everything, you know, help break through the, the, you know, the, the consciousness crust of the masses and, you know, the record companies then started getting copies of it into the, tiniest nooks and crannies of the smallest villages around the world and just blanketing the planet in the product and so that is the measure of of success right um so it's uh it's been a uh it's a frustrating thing for anybody to get into when i became the president of the songwriters association association of canada and we're lobbying ottawa and I'm just trying to get a fair shake on copyright use. Uh, I became aware of a really astute bunch of writers who I respect immensely. Bill Henderson from Chilliwack, Eddie Schwartz. Eddie's done so much for authors' rights, it's ridiculous. Mark Jordan and I became quite friendly in that window. Uh, A whole slew of writers. Sherry Elric from from, uh, the West Coast, and Valdi, and... These guys are all still writing, and I think Murray did one of it. McLaughlin did one of his best albums, the last cut about two years ago. He wrote kind of old jazz standards, but they were all new. Mm-hmm. They were all, you know, he sat back with a, you know, book of jazz chords and started learning, you know, you know the box positions, etc., and and great lyrics and probably one of the most interesting albums of his career. So real writers are always going to write because it's who they are. And that's the difference between people who get bitter because they're no longer in the limelight and oh, they were after the limelight and that was their motivation. But if your motivation was the song, then same thing for my brother in Hollywood. He was always a writer.
1: Right,
0: He didn't like performing that much. He's still writing. He was one of the head writers on Bones for probably five years, and then he started writing for The Blacklist, and he just sold a couple of shows recently. I mean, he's he's, he's like two years older than me, and he's still at it. He's a writer. He's a ridiculously creative individual. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, I look at Mark and Murray, who I tour with every year, these guys are stimulating guys. They are lifers. They're lifer writers. And uh, it's, uh, I am honored to be in their company. I, I'd like to be, I'd like to consider myself uh, a lifer.
1: Well, you know how I feel about you. I'm, I'm thrilled that I get a chance to talk to you on this 200th episode of my podcast. Um, your music has been played throughout my life and it's been part of the soundtrack of my life and it's it's such a thrill for me to be sitting here with you so thank you so much for doing this my pleasure my Uh, final question yeah is how do you measure success at this point
0: that's interesting I think it's a real uh, it really comes down to that epictetus saying this uh, was a peripatetic uh Greek philosopher who ended up in Rome and got kicked out of Rome because the emperor thought he was too smart. Uh, but he was the guy who said, you can't control life, only how you respond to it. So at this point in my life, that's what I'm working on. That's what's interesting to me. Uh, who is it I want to be in my responses? So here I'm drawing on the past and infinite past the future—all of the same stuff is for a song. But it's—I want to—I want to be a better human being, and uh, my art is is still there. It's sort of a sort of a. <laughs> There's a dog that's it's a constant companion, but every day when I wake up, I think about all right, how do I want to respond? You know, I just went through, my son became a paraplegic three years ago after a snowmobile accident.
1: How's Uh, he doing? Pardon me? How is he doing?
0: Uh, He's, well, it's a terrible life. He has, he has, uh, neurological pain that's, uh, generated that's, it's excruciating. Right. And there's no fix. Um, um, but he's he's a film editor and uh, he's a brilliant editor actually. He has an amazing eye, uh, and he's raising four kids. His wife's at med school, so he his life is full. Uh, but in that window, it was a very, it was a big crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, you you're faced with okay. Right now, I'm a pariah. You know, when it happened to him, I was a pariah. I couldn't get out of the doldrums i couldn't get out of my black funereal costume uh it was uh and i just kept going over epictetus there it is again i can't control this how do i respond to it so that is that's in every moment of my existence now so every day i think about that for a couple of minutes uh Life is this magical sentience out of nowhere. Here we are. And uh, so every day I want to be cognizant of that. Uh, I find I have an intense sense of gratitude uh, for this uh, gifted life mm-hmm. I have. And it's coming I wrote a song called Grateful. I think it's a beautiful song. We do it on one of the Lunch at Allen's uh, records. And uh, so at this point in my life, yeah, I'm in the back nine here, you know. I mean, uh, I'm losing some friends at this point in life. Uh, And yes, uh, death is not as disconcerting as it has been because the more you do, the more you understand that uh, you're never going to understand it, you're just going to get used to it. Um, so that sounds really kind of dark and dingy to some people, but it really isn't. Death is a part of life, and I think it's sort of been the closet queen of our of the last two or three generations. Right. You don't know, talk about it because it's far too depressing, and but it isn't. Death can be a lovely thing. My, my dad had a good death. There is such a thing uh and so all of these things factor into where i am at this point in time i'm grateful that um i still want to write so i'm still writing uh you know just picked up some new gear some new software anxious to get rolling on that uh you know the universal audio stuff the compressors and neve modules etc now that i got a digital desk they're bringing the old days that's the way it should sound they've nailed the neve uh, module uh, preamps really well i mean i actually a beat it with a neve preamp and it's like fantastic so now the reverbs are good uh so i've got uh, the old uad compressors i'm excited about audio again you know, when it was all some, uh, the initial wave software was just awful. I can remember listening to a Grammy show one year and everything was compressed. I think they called them L3s where the floor is uh, and the ceiling are all squished into this thing. So the breathing of the crowd is as loud as the loudest note. And um, it was, uh, I think Arcade Fire was on that show and they're playing their big hit and they're playing it and there are guys on BMX bicycles doing (laughs) trick rides in front of the band. And it's like, remember when a band could just play a song? But no, now you have to have acrobats with your act. So I just, I started laughing and then I just had to shut it off. And the audio was horrible. And somebody had just strapped some L3s on. And so now that uh, a lot of the smart guys who were working, are front-ending before they get into go convert their stuff to wave files into computers. They're front-ending with Neve gear. They're front-ending with UAD Universal Audio gear, and s- some of the recordings are starting to sound good again. And I'm getting turned on as an engineer again. I mean, I I gave up. I did a commercial for uh, uh, a company in that window, and uh, and I sent it to them. They said, what? Well, it doesn't sound hot enough, like uh mm. well send me send me something that you, you want to hear, and they said it was an l three so I demoed i didn't even buy the l three I just tried out the demo, cranked it, so you know the quietest moment is as loud you know it's a square wave, basically, right. and sent it in oh that's fabulous, what did you do? and I said, well, you can have it. I'll keep the other version. <laughs> <laughs> But I can tell that the passion for that is back. It is. I sit in front, of, I've always been trying to find the perfect speakers. I know that is a never ending, a never ending uh, run. I've had a hard time beating these Dynaudio B15s, but there's a really good PMC uh, self powered called uh, Result 6 out now. I'm going to give them a little check. Sitting in front of the speaker. I had a great guy who built my studio so you've got a really good listening position and I'm now starting to get carried away into the sonic canvas again so I got a whack of songs actually that are coming that I think are gonna
1: uh, knock the books away for a bit well I look forward to hearing them thank you so much for doing this it's been a huge thrill
0: my pleasure